Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 157. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Um, mysteries. Crime. Thrillers. And suspense. Do you know, for some reason I almost said miseries and <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Well, one of the reasons we're a bit distracted is that we are just... Oh, my God. <laughs> she did just... it again. She did it again. Welcome to the Hopcast. The lovely Tinkerbell, our new cat that we mentioned last week, who joined us. And she's just demolished my dartboard yes. by jumping off my recording studio. That's the second time she's done that <laughs> today. Well, she goes up there. This is her favourite spot now. Uh, and she can't get down with any ease. Anyway, we do apologise for the interruption. She's now looking out the window looking and the world birds. outside. She's not in, in position yet to go outside. We've got to wait another week uh, when she's well established here in the house before she can come out. But maybe she'll purr for me. Uh, I put the microphone to her. <laughs> she will indeed. She's a lovely, lovely cat and she's been a, a joy to have. Anyway, let's get on with the show. And first of all, we ought to mention who our guest is. It's Linda O'Byrne and she's a very experienced author particularly of period romances set in the world of Jane Austen. Yes, so no no dead bodies this week, um, just um, entangled bodies. Yes, in a sort of very chaste fashion. <laughs> yes, kissing rather than anything else. Yes. But it's interesting, isn't it? We like having um, authors of different genres to the one we work in mm. on the podcast because we learn something from everybody we speak to. It doesn't matter what they write oh, about. Oh, yeah, and you're going to get, I mean... Trust me, listen to this because you'll get a lot from this. And uh, Linda, her writing career goes back decades. And indeed, uh, she has a great deal of experience in the industry, not least as an editor for some of the leading, the fiction editor yeah, fiction. Uh, of a number of leading uh, women's magazine titles, particularly from the um, the golden era of yes. magazine publishing in this country. Yeah, lovely. Anyway, Tinkerbell is now waiting for more fuss as she sits in front of us. She is a gorgeous black and white cat. Have you seen the uh, newsletter, which you can get by subscribing to our mailing list at uh, net? You will have seen pictures. And if you follow any of our social media, you'll oh, see yes, plenty I of pictures. Oh, yes, I have posted pictures of her. <laughs> yeah, she's a spectacular cat. But she has destroyed my dartboard, which is not... Well, not, not permanently. No, but, you know. It might be twice a day that happens, <laughs> <laughs> I predict. I dare say. Right. Well, let's get on with the news, and there's so much about, actually. Yeah, this there's week. quite a lot to choose from. Um, 
It's like the publishing world has woken up again. It does happen in January, actually. Suddenly everybody's enthusiastic and energetic and they, you know, announce and launch and all that sort of thing. Yes, there's lots of swooping going on. But, um, you know, aside from that, uh, one story that caught my eye was um, a report by, this is an analysis firm called Ender's Analysis, which reveals they've done a historical study of the real cost of books Mm. over the last 20 years and basically the cost of books has frozen when you say cost you mean the price retail price yeah well it's sort of married between the retail price and the actual cost of production and it's the you know the 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 the, the, that has dropped by two-thirds in real terms over the last 20 years which means that small publishers as they point out are really struggling because the appetite for for spending money on paperbacks, for instance, yes. is stuck at around in this country the maximums around the ten pound mark um, because you know they've been artificially low for a long, long time, and hardback prices are creeping up again. But generally speaking, despite the fact that cover prices are going up, they're still not keeping up with inflation, the actual production inflation. No, because psychologically, anything above nine ninety nine doesn't feel right. And I actually, interestingly, I bought a book. Um, from an independent publisher yesterday, and it was priced at ten ninety nine. And I can remember thinking, "Oh, that's above ten pounds." Um, and I can, I'll mention my challenge of twenty twenty four later. But that's part of my challenge. But yes, it was. It, its price was ten ninety nine for a paperback, and it, it did make me think, "Should I buy that?" But I then I thought, "Yes, I will." But that's me. <laughs> yes, I think. I mean, it's it's a barrier that's going to get. I think it's going to be one of those things of 2024. We were talking about trends last week. I think it's going to be one of those things where people are just going to have to get used to it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's still not easy. I mean, you know, it's very hard for us to make, well, there's no profit at £10 now for very few books. Yes, it, it, there's a lot of circumstances it depends on. You know, selling direct, yes, we do make some profit. And, you know, if we could sell all our books direct to customer, um, from our website and our own stocks, and that would be fantastic. But, you know, the reality of... The life doesn't work like that. No. No. Um, now, uh, another story that was uh, of interest to me, well, there was more of a feature in the bookseller that the Indie Press Network's been featured there. Yes. Which we were uh, early adopters of. And uh, there are now 44 different presses involved in the Indie Press Network, I believe. Yes, I think it is. Um, I think that's right. Um, and that's that's remarkable, given it's only three months old. Yes, so uh, indie presses are obviously waking up to the, uh, the benefit of being in this new organisation. And we've, we've found it really good so far. Um, a couple of examples of the things that they've done. One is um, they asked for the metadata for all our titles so that there were links on the indie, network, indie Press Network website to all our titles so customers could um, access them through the Indie Press Network, which is fantastic. It's another outlet. Um, but then last week, they also uh, created a page on their website of sort of the best of 2023, which featured books from all the members, um, a selection of books from all the members. And to be featured in that was very flattering and just, you know, made some of our authors very, very happy. Um, so we've had lots of sort of social media and retweeting. and Yes. And furthermore, I mean, we we had an email this week from the, the, the creator of the, the network um, there are plans. I mean, one of the things they were looking at is whether to get a stand at the London Book Fair. But the general feeling was that at ten grand for a stand between us, 
it was too much. It's still a lot of money, isn't uh, it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's right. And if you think about, you know, how many people from the network would have to, you know, you wouldn't be able to get many people around the small stand. We'd probably have to have half hour slots or something. Yes, yeah, it wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily work. But you know, that's something to bear in mind in the future. Yeah. Um, but there is a thought about having a gathering at London Book Fair. Oh, okay. I, I didn't see that, but yeah, that would be good if we. Um... Yeah, managed to attend, but yes, if we if we decide to go. But uh, anyway, look, early days, positive steps, and a good thing for twenty twenty four. And we've also got a Discord group, which um, I've joined um, on yes. behalf of Hobeck. I mean, we haven't had much discussion yet. Lots of hello, hello, hello. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that could be a good forum for um, sorting out issues and just venting and um, sharing ideas. So that that's a, another positive move. It's good. Because we haven't really had any contact beyond um, email exchange with some other independent press um, publishers that we happen to come across, but only one or two really. Mm. Um, so this is a chance to get to know people we wouldn't normally come across. You know, some of these publishers I hadn't heard of. Um, Which has been useful for you because you're doing the Writers and Artists Yearbook. Now that is quite funny because um, so this week um, I emailed everybody. <laughs> from the Indie Press Network who wasn't already in the yearbook to ask if they want to join, um, have a listing in the yearbook. So, yeah, saved me a lot of work, which is great. No, that is great. That is great. Well, you know, it's funny because I wanted to have a little rant, if I may, oh, my rant of the week. Go for it. Well, I didn't talk about this before we started to record this podcast, but we were in Birmingham yesterday. Uh, we had a date night. <laughs> Do you know, I hate that phrase. I hate date well, night. Well, you came up with date night. You said it was a no, date I night. I pretended it was the fir- our first date just for fun. Oh, we did. Yeah, yeah. but that's not the point. <laughs> it was, it, that was quite amusing, just how quiet we are. Um, but the, the uh, we went to two bookshops in Birmingham, and they're two big ones. So one's Foils, which is in Grand Central, uh, you know, New Street Station, which uh, was it's not a very big store. But it's a big name, Foils. And the other one was Waterstones, of course. Which is like four floors, I think. Yeah, five four floors, floors even. Five floors, yeah. It's got a basement floor as well. Of, yeah, it's, a, the, it's a the, massive... That's where you find the crime books. My, the, the, the thing I concluded from my visit to both was, have they given up selling books? And why do I say that? Not so much Waterstones, but Foils... Almost half of its retail space, limited space, was given over to puzzles, games, gifts, gift wrap, and birthday cards. It, yeah, and and the last time I went to Foils it was probably about a year ago. I mean, except for December. I went in December briefly as well, but between those times, it was about twelve months, and I was shocked. I was I was genuinely shocked, and I thought, well, you know, where's the fiction section? There was no. Well, I went through. Yes, exactly. So I looked, um, so the one, you can imagine one wall is essentially all around the till and everything else. And as you go in, is dedicated to that stuff. You know, puzzles seem to be the number one thing. The books, all of them face out. So there's nothing side on. There's like, no shelves. There's no shelves. In the traditional there, sense. No, no. I went to the crime section. Two thirds of it was classic crime, Agatha Christie. You know, uh, um, there were there were other titles by Len Dayton, things like that. And everything's face out. So that means that there's, there's no depth of stock. It is just what they decide to face, you know. So the cookery section, for instance, probably had only 20 titles in it. Yeah. What are they doing? I don't know. 
And I mean, Waterstones, giant store, again, ground floor, half of it dedicated to gifts, puzzles, gift wrap, cards, little knick-knack things at the till. And then new books on one side, on the right-hand side as you come in, a few tables, and then it's just, you know, forget about it. Books aren't there. And, you know, the cafe is monumental, but shut when we were there. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, What are they doing? Have the main book retailers given up selling books is my my thought. Or, you know, is it just a... That's their reason for being on the high street, but actually it's an excuse to... What does it say about public taste if uh, this is what the priority is? Maybe they're, they're, they're trying to attract people in who wouldn't go in for books and then while they're there hoping that they would buy books. I don't know. I, I, I get the impression. I mean, I, you know, I don't know enough about modern retail. Um, but I think that there's a great deal of emphasis on the opportunity purchase which is, oh, I hadn't seen that before. That, that's quirky. Let's buy that. Oh, so-and-so would like that. Rather than providing a comprehensive offer of books. Now, I thought that, you know, having said that about Waterstones, their history section was monumentally huge Yeah. Um, on the floor that I was looking around at, but I couldn't find the books that I wanted to look at, which was, you know, see if there's any titles I can add to my library of how to write and how to publish and all that sort of stuff, um, which I love to add to. Yes, um, I know. Yeah, I mean, in a way, a bookshop is is only is it's like a library where you can take the books away for a fee. <laughs> it should be. It should be like that, shouldn't it? Yes, but it's increasingly not like that. And this is, you know, we're talking about the second city of the UK with the Waterstones, where it's linking puzzles. Anyway, that's my rant. Uh, your final story. Um, okay, so there's a story that attracted my attention, um, and it's about TikTok. I don't know. I'm just I find TikTok fascinating, and um, we were talking in our uh, podcast last week when we were talking about trends that actually TikTok may have reached its the point of when it changes to a um, advertising social media. Mm. Um, but this interests me because um, Mills and Boone. I'm, I find Mills and Boone books fascinating because they churn out so many, don't they? They do. And they have a readership that yep. still exists. It's still going strong. Well, they're launching um, an imprint within Mills and Boone called Afterglow, which is um, going to focus on TikTok readers. So it's going to be sort of more modern romances, such as um, LGBT plus representation, um, there's uh, one of the storylines they're going for is the fake dating game um, described by the publisher as delightful and steamy male male romance that takes the trope of faux dating to a whole new level which I, I love that that's brilliant faux dating wow <laughs> okay well um, things are adapting and it's interesting to see an imprint like that so long established with a certain reputation Making so those romance is not dead. Romance oh, no, is alive not. and strong. Well, romance is the very best-selling genre of all. Yeah. It is just doesn't feature in your Waterstones very much. <laughs> That's the truth of it. It, no. it, is, it is a hidden pleasure that you get through mail order or from, um, you know, on, you know, uh, e-books. And... Um, it is not. There is a romance section in in the, in the Waterstones as big as the one in Birmingham. Mm. There was a, um, it's not very big, but there is a section. No, but it, but it, you know, it's the sort of thing you'd expect in W. H. Smith more. And sometimes there's a large section, usually in supermarkets, isn't there, of a certain type of thing where, you know, a man in breeches and um, you know, 
uh, I don't know, floor, floor, uh, uh, I was going to say flowery shirt. I don't mean that. I mean, um, you know what I mean? Hawaiian? Uh, back, no, I'm talking about sort of period costume, poldarky. Oh, like kind of, uh, romance style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. Um, adamant. And a woman in a bodice sort of, <laughs> you know, hugging her man and all this sort of stuff. And I can feel the heat rising off you as you speak. No, no. Well, anyway, let's talk to somebody <laughs> who really knows what they're talking about when it comes to writing a romance. And uh, that's Linda O'Byrne, um, who spoke to us uh, earlier this week. And Linda, as I say, um, has a vast career. I mean, published very early on in her, her life, writing stories in the 60s for kids, adventure stories, books about ponies and all that sort of stuff that, that were fashionable. <laughs> and and uh, ice skating and ballet. And She also worked in publishing. Yeah. And uh, then she became an editor for some of the biggest names in terms of titles in the magazine market for women, right, you know, organising all the fiction. Yes. For, for, for play, what a fun Magazines job. like Bella. So uh, now... She's writing books which are set in the world, Jane Austen, but take you forward yes, further into the 19th century, 20 years on from the original books about, take, you know, and this is the, uh, these are the cousins of Pemberley. Yes. So let's talk to Linda O'Byrne. Well, what a pleasure it is to speak to Linda O'Byrne here on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And we're delighted to speak to you um, because we're fascinated by the the genre that you're working in, in a way, um, which is at the moment, your principal genre is creating stories, sort of extrapolating and moving forward from the world of Jane Austen as it stands in the original canon. Yes. And it strikes me as a narrator, I get quite a lot of interest from authors, certainly in the United States, who have written within the Jane Austen world it's it's a it's a huge thing i it's only until i started getting these you know queries as to whether i was prepared to sort of narrate some books that i realized just how big it is so what draw what drew you to to write at this stage of your career in that world well i've always been a huge jay knight huge austin fan uh i visited her house at chawton regularly in fact quite soon i should be moving within about you know, 20 miles of Jordan, so I can I can go reg- even more regularly than I go now. Um, but yes, I, I love the books, love the fact that you can read them over and over again and find something different every time that you read. Uh, these came about, I think, like so many other authors, it was during lockdown. Uh, and it came from three different, different threads, really. One was... Um, the fact that lots of my friends aren't Austin fans, except for the television and the films. They, yes. oh, yeah, yeah. they loved the films, adored Mr. Darcy, Colin Firth, <laughs> everything about the, um, the, but they can't get on with the books because they feel the books are heavy in quotes. And obviously, and still the way the books are printed, and I still don't understand why the books are printed in that way. They print them in great chunks. They're mm. very hard. If you're not an, an avid reader, it, they are hard to read. They're not done in little, nice little sections, which are easy on the eye. Uh, so I, that was, that was one thread. The second thread was lockdown, <clears throat> and my sister and I were bored, she lives quite away from me um, and she wanted something to read 
uh, and we were talking one day about um, how strange it was in the family that your children quite often are not like you, but they do have traits of other members of your family that you mm. see and you look at your children, you think, oh, great auntie Ethel was just like that, you know, and you, you see it in coming out suddenly in the child. And that was one thread of the conversation. And then the other one was when she had been watching um, Pride and Prejudice uh, on a video and uh, she said, I wonder what happens next. And suddenly I said, oh, oh I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll write you a little story about what happens next to one of the characters. And I sat and wrote literally a very, very short piece about, which is the beginning of the first book, Cassandra, where she runs away from home. And the only place she can go is to her uncles in who she knows that the families don't get on, but she thinks that she'll be safe at Pemberley. So I wrote this 2,000 words, didn't think any more of it, sent it to my sister who immediately wrote back and said, but then what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> a bit like a sort of Dickens serialisation then. <laughs> there isn't a what happens next, that's it, that's it. So six books later, I've, I've actually convinced her that this is what happens next. <laughs> Brilliant. What? She's still reading them, is she? Oh yeah, she's my most avid fan and well, most <laughs> critical fan too. And she's 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 very good at picking out, so, you know, like this last one. I'm just started number seven, sent to the first chapter, and she said, "I don't understand who these people are." I thought, "Ah, yes, I understand who they are." But, <laughs> you know, she doesn't, so that had had to go back and you know recover that. Yeah, no, that's interesting because sometimes as a writer, you assume more than you, well, you assume oh, your reader knows what you're, what you know. Yeah, yeah, you do. You, you, and especially when you are doing um, a series, each book has to stand alone because obviously if somebody's picking it up in a library or buying it, um, but then you've got to have a little list of who some of these people are because as in, in any family, other people, members of the family are referred to. Yeah. Yes, and not everybody will have read the whole of Pride and Prejudice and remember who these people are, you know. Um, so that, well, that... they might have read it a long time ago because, like me, you know, I, I read it um, when I was probably about sixteen or seventeen, so I won't remember. Yes, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a, one of my big beefs, I suppose, and one I, I do give talks about sometimes, um, is that we are so. Uh, used to looking at the characters thinking of the characters as they appear on the screen and then you refer back to the book and it's nothing like what she wrote mm. like you know can I go on talking about this it's all right you know, yeah yeah, yeah keep going Mr Collins is referred in the book as a tall good-looking well-built young man of sober disposition nothing like Mr Collins appears as the silly idiot parson on the screen she didn't write him like that mm. she wrote him as somebody who was doing them a favor by trying to marry one of their daughters and save their house but yeah. that that doesn't fit in with the modern interpretation of mr collins no and also maybe it creates a bit more tension in the story to have him less likable as a character absolutely but she yeah. didn't she didn't want to do that she wanted to because then again, you, you it's the prejudice. You see, they're prejudiced against him. 
Mm. You know, if the only reason is because he's boring. Mm. No other reason, not physically, between the television and the films, it's there's a physical thing. He looks slightly repellent, but not on the books, he isn't. So was that, I mean, I'm trying to remember back, this is Andrew Davis did the adaptation, was it? Yes, for the, for the right. Colin Firth one, yes. Yes, right. So the one that, the, the, the one that, most people, certainly in the UK, would refer back to as in their mind's eye. Which uh, um, Pride and Prejudice, they call it, yes. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, he presumably, I mean, I, I, he's a great adapter of all oh. sorts of things and, and tackled some of the most difficult books in um, the, uh, um, the the canon. What else has he done then, just out of interest? Uh, didn't he do Bleak House as well? Oh, so similar sort of Victorian... Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you're adapting, of course, you adapt to your audience. That's, yes. That's, that is what you do. You you have an audience. It's like I'm writing. I'm not trying to copy, which some authors do. I'm not trying to copy Jane Austen's style. Mm. I, because that is, I've, one of the things that I said earlier, I wanted to make them more accessible to the modern day readers, that they could pick them up and read them as they were reading a, a novel that was written for about today. Right. Well, that, you see, this is interesting. I mean, so presumably he was thinking, right, OK, uh, Mr. Collins is a repellent character, but the reasons why he would be repellent to an Austin, uh, you know, the original audience is not really the way that a modern audience would yes. conceive of it. So yes. that's why he went for the physical yes. Um, yes. appearance. Yes, yes. And it's more obvious as well. Yeah. Because in the book, it's much more subtle. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's only 25, like 26 in the book. He's he's a young a very young man, uh, which makes um, you know it, it it makes sense in the book um, uh, uh, for people reading in in those days. Although yeah. six in those days wasn't a young man. Then you you get very confused with ages in the books. Mm. Well, yes, I mean I mean yeah. if he'd made forty or fifty, that's uh, that's a good age. Isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we were talking about. So yeah. you're yes. right. He's almost well, middle aged at twenty five. Well, this is. <laughs> When you think about it, Mrs. Bennet had her youngest daughter Lydia when she was, um, well, she had Jane when she was seventeen, and then you work them down. She was, she's probably in her late forties. She's not a silly old lady, you know. Mm. It's, yeah. it, it's, 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 it's quite intriguing. Anyway, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. It is that interesting, you know, carrying those themes through and then transposing them for a modern audience. But in terms of how far forward you've taken. The world, yes, Pemberley, and your I, characters. How 20, far forward are we talking about, and, and, and what period of, of history are we are you having to place them in? Now, looking at um, William the Fourth, um, mm. very much the, the whole. That's a very strange few years between the end of the Regency period. Mm. Regency's gone. In 1837, we're going to start with Victoria comes to the throne, of course, and there is this gap which nobody really really thinks about when William the Fourth was on the throne and desperately hanging on to life so that he could pass his the crown on to Victoria um, rather than have it go to you know her mother as a regent Um, and it's a strange time because everything's in flux things are changing attitudes are changing there's a lot of um, revolution in the air Les Mis Obviously, the time of Les Mis, all that is is then. Um, there's the 
all the factories being built in the north, industrial revolution, the um, uh, agricultural revolution down in Dorset, mm. which is covered in one of my books. Yes, yeah. So it, a lot, a lot is happening in that time, and and things that we don't even know about. I mean, there was a huge, um, a huge rally of, uh, when the um, uh, Tichborne martyrs. You know, the people who were who were in Dorset who were um, sent abroad. Um, yes, for um, their crimes of against the, the crime that they were sent aboard for was swearing an oath against the king but they revolted because they wanted more money for their for their agricultural work uh, and they they formed a you know, you know an association which is against was against the law but what is interesting and i didn't know till i researched it was that there was a huge rally in their favor just outside king's where king's cross station is now yeah. and then thousands and thousands and thousands of people turned up no, you know, I never knew anything about that. There are pictures on, on you know, that you can, you know, see. Um, it, it, it's an interesting time. So I've come 20 years forward. All the girls, the five daughters of the Bennett family, all have children. And they all have a daughter, obviously. Some have more than one. Uh, and it is their stories that I'm telling. Mm. That's brilliant. And you, you're right about certain periods of, of British history for those who pay any attention to it are you know very obvious and you know we're talking about uh, Tudors everyone knows their Tudor bit <laughs> some of us I mean it's not taught very widely but the Civil War is clearly yes. a very important period and then you get yeah, a bit Victorians. of a sort of yeah and then it's it sort of it kind of skips yeah to the Victorians unless we're talking about it's battlefields cool. Yeah. expansion of the yeah. empire yeah you know maybe lord marlborough might get a look in yeah. and obviously nelson and and um duke of wellington yes. will get a mention and then we're talking about victorian period yes and but the change was all the time uh, in clothes very much all those yeah. regency um dresses with nothing underneath them you know, and you know the high high banded under the waist, and then practically transparent. Um, they were all going because then petticoats started coming in more and more and more petticoats, and you're, you're aiming your you know gentlemen's trousers started actually getting well. They, they, they sometimes they got looser. Sometimes they were actually having what look we would almost call trousers, but they, they did still wear breeches in the uniform had to be tight but the, for the ladies things were getting far more modest mm. they were heading very much for the victorian times where you had about 20 you know well not 20 but <laughs> a lot of petticoats and long sleeves if you know, high necks yeah yeah, yeah. it's interesting is it so did you do a lot of research into the fashion side of yes, the fashion it's, it's interesting because Jane Austen, she has two things which annoy some read, modern day readers very much. Apart from telling people if people are pretty or handsome or beautiful, she doesn't describe them. Mm. And she doesn't describe clothes. She will talk about somebody wearing a muslin dress or in the famous Pride and Prejudice scene, Elizabeth's petticoats got covered in mud when she tra traipsed through the mud to go and visit Jane. 
she doesn't describe in great detail what people are wearing. And in modern day books, people like to know what people are wearing. It paints more of a picture to them. You know? So, yes, I had to sort of start. I don't do it a lot. I, again, I'm trying to, you know, the t- temptation is to keep t- talking about somebody's blue eyes or brown hair or, you know, um, and you have to be very, very careful. You have to go through your manuscript and weed out all the eyes, you know, all the blue yeah. eyes. You know, so. Yes, I know he's got blue eyes. You don't have to keep telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good point, isn't it? Because I think sometimes when people start writing, they assume you... you it's better if you do you paint this picture of the character in that way but actually you need to give the reader um credit for being able to imagine the character just by the the things that you do tell them about them absolutely yes and I think it's more important to sometimes try and paint a picture of the person's character as quickly as you can which I try to do in all my books is to write from the beginning show them who this girl is either through her own words or through somebody else's words. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, yes. no, 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 no. I mean, you know, I, I wish more people thought like that when they're writing. I think it, when you start off writing, when people start off writing, they, they, they learn it gradually, don't they? They sort of come to realise that you don't have to describe everything no. in, in graphic detail, as in, you know, like you say, the blue eyes. <laughs> it can get very boring. And I think one of the things you learn as you as you get older and as you write is to what to cut out because it's I found that you you read a book and suddenly in the middle of all this action you've got a two-page diatribe about saving the whale because <laughs> you've lit somebody the, the author has read about this and is determined to use it somewhere or oh, this guy's making a speech or this guy's telling his girlfriend about his hobbies so you'll get two pages about having to save the whale which has nothing to do with the story at all no it's almost like they think well I've done the work researching it so I need to make show you that I've done the research yes you've got all this research you've got notebooks all over your desk you know thousands of notebooks with with things written in it them i've got to tell people all this information <laughs> <laughs> no guess. i think that that that's something i noticed in um in the 80s with thrillers were particularly guilty of this but oh, yes. they had any sort of military or technical clancy uh, is, is, yes, yes clancy was a great example oh, of it you know you a, a chapter on how a submarine works you know yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was under the water yes it's clever yes i don't need to know how the engines work right right yeah you know how to get the trim right and all this sort of thing yeah um no that's exactly what i was thinking and and it is it is it is difficult isn't it in the sense you know you've done all this research and actually it is this world building in your head you know you know i've noticed that in the recent interview we're talking about how much research needs to go into figuring out how long it takes to get one character from a to b in your period yes yeah, and a time, the different time time period. You 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 find interesting little snippets like um, on one site I couldn't tell you which it was now. It works out at they said it eight miles an hour by carriage, but yeah. with the improvement of the roads in the eighteen thirties, they could go up to ten miles an hour. Um, but then you're having to change horses all the time, which people don't write into the book. They set off with the same horses; they'd be dead by. You know, 20 miles further down the road 
pulling a dirty great carriage with all these people on board. No, they, they, you have, they, they stopped all the time and changed horses. But you still couldn't go more than eight to ten miles an hour on the roads. There weren't roads like ours. No, right? not at all. No. Adam, you know, yeah. No, it's it's fascinating just trying to get those micro details right because they're they're crucial. Really. Absolutely, because, yeah. You know, you think about if someone was writing historically about our period and they didn't understand how screens had taken over the way that we all operate. <laughs> Or indeed, you know, there are things that we do now in 2024 that we couldn't do five years ago. Absolutely, yeah. On apps and whatever else, because they didn't exist. Yes. And, and so, you know, it's very, very... I mean, clearly technology moves a lot slower then. But Well, making, you say that, but I don't think that's true. Well, it probably <laughs> felt... No, I mean, it probably felt like it was accelerating at a pace that no one could possibly comprehend or, or cope with. Yeah, the things like the industrial side, things were happening yes. at a huge rate of knots. Um, I think in this one that's coming out on the 26th of January, which yes. is six, um, two of the characters of uh, down in London looking at this railway that's been built between uh, London Bridge and Greenwich, uh, which was literally so that people could go to Greenwich. Um, you know, and it is still, you can still see all the archways where they these brick archways well this was a huge innovation but i i haven't gone into a lot of the de- industrial side of it yeah. no but in a way there must be a feeling within that world of an encroachment a um these things won't reach us you know we don't need to change is that sort of the the, the way that people are thinking or are there people who are modernists and can't wait to adopt I think I've got a couple of people who are, have, are going to go. Well, one of my characters, Miriam, who is Mary's daughter, um, she's very wild and she's now gone off um, with a sea captain who is trading with it to the Far East, you know. And so that trade of bringing silk and tea and everything was, you know, steam was just beginning to be thought about, but it was still sale at that time but yes it was things were beginning to encroach on mr and mrs darcy's very pleasant life in 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 pemberley the life for their children wouldn't be the same as it was for them no no it's um that's you've got such a box of of uh things to play with in this in this era as you know so so i guess the temptation is you could play with them all (laughs) and perhaps not take your audience with you but I mean, do you do you sort of ration yourself? Do you think, right, I'm thematically going to move on this, or because they're romantic stories of a classical nature, you have something to keep it a bit tighter. Some things you have to put in. Um, In one of my books, Jane, I think it is. um, I was cheerfully writing writing away about you know. Then I thought, well, I better. I had to come to London with the plot, and I thought, well, I better just check. Nothing was happening in London at that time. Oh, it's the Great Fire of London, which <laughs> isn't the Great Fire as in... In 1666 one. No. It's the one where the Houses of Parliament burnt down. Yes, yes. And nobody really knows about this, you know, that it was burnt down to the ground. There was nothing left apart from the banqueting hall, which is still there. Yeah. And, and Turner was sitting on the banks of the Thames for hours painting pictures of the Fire of London. Yeah. Um, again, 
it's very, very rarely mentioned that this fire took place. And then there was a, there was a, afterwards when they'd cleared all the rubbish, there was a, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, a competition for who was going to build what we now know as the Houses of Parliament. And it was rife with, you know, sort of jealousy and everything. Yeah. You know, sort of, you can imagine it, can't you? If some same sort of thing happened today. Who would get the who would get the job to rebuilding the Houses of Parliament? How would they build it? I mean, nobody wanted it built the way he built it. No, Pugin and um, yeah. So that's uh, right. I mean, it would have been. Yeah, I guess we'd have uh, into the book likes now, of you know who the modern architect, you know, Richard Rogers, Renzo Piano, or whatever. Um, <laughs> Yes. Putting in for it. I was going to say Zaha Hadid, but she's passed on. Um, you know. <laughs> no, this um, go into the book. The fire had to go into the book. I couldn't leave it out. No, absolutely. Oh, no, no, that would have been a, a seismic event. Yes. Um, but it's, it's interesting because if you're saying a lot of people don't know about it, but they will learn about it through reading your book. That you know, not not the detail, but they'll they might think. Oh, I didn't know about that. And then they might go off and look it up or whatever, you know. So in a way you're also yeah, I, I educating like, people about a period in history they don't know much about. Not deliberately. I I don't like history books which set out to give you great lumps of history as if they're teaching you all about that era. I mean, some books do it effortlessly. You know, you think of Gone with the Wind. You know, I don't think yeah. she set out to, to educate people on the American Civil War she set out to write a love story and the fact that you learn an enormous amount from the American Civil War by reading Gone with the Wind is is almost academic you know you, you add that on um, I don't like books which set out to inform you in a very deliberate way no. yeah especially if you're reading it for pleasure you don't want to be um, educated to that level but I'm just thinking that you know the reader might think, well, I didn't know about that. And that's really interesting. So they sort of, then so, they have that knowledge to do with whatever they like. I hope that like little things like Princess Victoria wasn't her name. She was Alexandrina. Mm. And Victoria was her second name. And uh, I think that's quite cute that she decided not to call herself by, you know, what, what, what her real name was. And the fact she was being toted around the country for a, several of the years of which in in my book well as a young girl so her mother could show everybody she wasn't mad like her great uncle <laughs> and, and she, i didn't know that <laughs> she kept she kept being shown off in various sort of levees and meetings down in you know all over the country you know this poor little soul chattering away in german um just to show that she wasn't um mad mm. yeah uh, that's true i mean Maybe we'll be hawking, um, I don't know, Prince George around to prove that he's not something else, like his he uncle. Would, yeah. <laughs> I don't... yeah. With reference to Harry. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Harry's not mad. Isn't he? <laughs> Stop it. Roughly, as they say. No, I was going to ask, I mean, you know, so with, a, with you know, so many books in the series now, uh, do you have in your mind... Uh, certain i was going to use beats as a description but you know hard points in when you're putting a story together that you know your readers expect that you know that you have a mental template they expect a happy ending right they expect to know who the i've toyed with trying to 
decide you know, who is the hero. I, I, I wanted to do a book where you didn't know or you had a choice. And, and it was look, decided that, no, they, they really want to know who the hero is from, almost from the beginning to see how they're going to come together. You know, you, you know, um, so, so that was, that is what I did. Yes. They, yes. they have to be a happy ending. There has to be a misunderstandings of, but to a certain extent they have to be, it's easier in those days. I mean, most books of those days could have been sold by a mobile phone, you know, I mean, <laughs> But in, in the days when it took a letter to re, you know a week to reach a letter or, or letters from abroad would often get lost the ships would founder or be sink or whatever cargo got destroyed um letters never arrived you know um but uh you know a mobile phone would have been much very useful in lots of regency romance <laughs> well, why were you going out with that girl i wasn't she's my sister oh Oh, okay. Yeah, end of story, really. You know. Yeah, I mean, like a, you could have a, like a WhatsApp conversation as a novel. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, and and of course, I mean, at the centre of any romantic story is this sort of, uh, you know, this deniable uh, chemistry. You know, that both characters decide yes. early on that they're yeah. not, you know that are appalled or they don't like each other or whatever it is, but they nonetheless, they keep getting drawn back to them. Well, in the, in the next one, Beth, which just comes out on the 26th of January, they both uh, disagree. They both don't believe in love. They don't believe mm. falling in love. Both the characters very firmly think that it's just a fiction. It doesn't happen. You just meet somebody and you decide to marry them because that's a sensible thing to do yeah, it's a practical thing yeah, to do yeah which it was in those days yeah falling married being marrying for love was very rare nice if it happened but marriage was was a business even in even in the much more if i use the words lower classes the fam- farmers the peasantry all that side again it was much more a business contract than it was an affair of the heart mm. Mm. And it's she... interesting because we have so we have this romantic notion of those times though of of the love in romance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can see this. You know, you're not impressed by this <laughs> idea. Well, I, I think we're going back into another phase of um, you know wondering if we're suited to each other and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm waiting for the for the business side to show up you know <laughs> you've been waiting for years for me to be business-like in anything yeah that's very true um no i mean that that, that that's that's fascinating I, now i want to sort of delve back if you if i may to sort of earlier in your career because you were the editor for in literary editor for uh, magazines like bella um and other woman in home and bella um yes uh, and before that, I was worked for book publishers, book publishers, and then I went into magazines, and eventually became mm. fiction editor of, of, of those. Yes. Yeah, and and so that is a. It's almost. I mean, it's terrible to say, isn't it? Because I know that certain magazines have a quarterly release of fiction, but it's not as central to the offer because i mean that whole industry shrunk hugely recently yes i mean it in my day um it was huge 
I mean, on Women's Weekly, we ran two serials and two short stories every week, every week. So you had a serial starting and then, you know, another as it finished, the other one had to start. It was a huge industry and a huge um, uh, pull for readers. They, the hook is the hook to take you over to go and buy the next week's, week's copy. Mm. Yeah. It was the fiction. It, it took you over almost like you know series on the television do now except yeah. you couldn't binge read it you couldn't go in and buy the next yeah, you'd have to wait a week <laughs> you had to go and buy it at the book at the news agent but then it's yeah. really people's changed fiction changed people you know the younger generation got not tired of it it didn't have as much relevance in their lives um mainly because um, it was difficult to write about modern-day love affairs, which were very sexual, uh, and the publishers didn't want it. They didn't want to have that in their magazines, and so it just faded away. Mm. And yeah. again, one of the things, too, was it was it was the start of this, what I call, photographic pictures. You had to have... I mean, I, I, I said to somebody once, I went through my whole career with, with having meetings with people saying, we want white space and pictures and captions. And then two years later, it would be, we don't want all this white space. We want text. <laughs> sort of, yes. yeah, yeah. We went from pictures to text and white space. <laughs> well, I, 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 I empathise in the sense that um, a good friend of mine used to be an editor on, on, a, on a, essentially a magazine aimed at female readers but right. it was the period when the the magazines you're talking about were then joined by the real stories yes phenomenon oh yeah yeah take a break yes well, they do they still do the real stories don't and, they and she this is my good friend is it was the editor of real people magazine and so right. it was going out and saying you know i went to the toilet and i had a baby kind of so I yeah. didn't realise I was pregnant. Kind of sensationalism. Dated with such someone who stole thousands of pounds off their mother or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that was what people wanted. They didn't want to read about a you know a nice quiet little girl in Surrey who had fallen in love with a doc local doctor and did he love her? <laughs> no, um, no, that those days were going, and they wanted, as you say, to to know about or read what they thought was real people. Some of them weren't. Some of them was more. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, uh, that's another story. <laughs> and then that has, as a as a, a thing, has dried up. I mean, the, the magazine's closed, yes. and uh, so you know it, it, that evolution. I've seen it in in my career in broadcasting. Yes. We, you know, and I, I joined the BBC when it was the British Broadcasting Corporation, but within five years, it had become the BBC trying to catch up with the digital yes. revolution company uh, corporation and now that's, that's all a mouthful. That, and now that's all they're really concerned about because they can't get audiences for the stuff they put out on the telly and the radio so um, it changes i mean like the real life changed to celebrity real yeah. life fiction um real life stories vanished and celebrity and royalty and <laughs> you still can't go wrong with either of those celebrity and royalty will sell anything mm. uh, whether it will change again i can't see it can't see it happening with royalty when you've got three little 
princes and princesses that you can cheerfully fill the pages with for the next 20 odd years. Um, it will change again at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? what, what will people want to read about next? But in terms of your evolution as a as an hour writer, but certainly as an editor of those oh, publications. It, it makes it my writing difficult because I had to cut copy every week to fit it into an exact page. So I spent the majority of my life editing, cutting, praising, cutting, and then I I type a page of copy and I go back at it now and I think, cut that couldn't I I could cut that I could cut yeah yeah, I write write very very tight um which is my biggest fault and I have to think yes I have to go back and expand I have to go back and and try and loosen it because that's really interesting because I think you're the first person who said that first writer we've spoken to said that instead of having to go in and and cut they have to go in and expand yeah, I have to go back and add because I, I could I could write the whole story in one, one page, you know, from beginning to end. And I think, well, yeah, that, that's good, but I think I might need to add another seventy thousand words somewhere along the line. You know, that's I do empathise. I, I do because you know uh, if print is demanding in terms of being getting a story across quickly in a page or whatever. Trust me, broadcasting is even less than that. Yes, because you know, if you if you're lucky enough to get a minute and a half of airtime on yeah. television, and you put in two clips of people speaking, or maybe even three clips, you've only got. Uh, let me see. I'll just do the maths. Forty five seconds worth of script, which is one hundred and thirty five words. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. again, I from that background and having written copy, you know, to deadline. Yes. for years it it's works. really hard to yes. to you know Go. settle back relaxed give give your characters the space give your setting the space yes. because you know my instinct is to think it's superfluous as well <laughs> the thing that i i i find actually does pay me quite good dividends is that through all those years of writing and editing serials i knew that every end of the serial had to have a hook Mm. to get them over to the next week to go and buy the copy. So I still write like that. Every end of my chapter isn't just the end of a chapter. It's a hook. Yeah. I you, you I write... don't even think I do it consciously. I think I do it quite unconsciously. Mm. Well, that that's it's... great because, you know, yeah. let's be honest, in a popular genre such as this, uh, I think authors sometimes forget that's what people really drives them through books um, and particularly in something like romance, which, you know, it's recognised as a genre where there are whale readers who will read a book a day. Yes, um, whale and, readers. No, and, and 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 that's what they're looking for is that that feeling that they have to be I mean, they have to be carried over all the time. You have mm. to have your reader on all the time. It has to be pace, and the pace of a book is difficult sometimes to to judge. You think yourself that you it's quite fast and then somebody else will read it and say oh it drags a bit in chapter two can't you jolly it up a bit you know um and you oh did I? okay i'll go back and have a look at it um but uh no that as you say it they they need to be brought forward at the end of every chapter to the next chapter 
because people still read in chapters. I mean, I've been staggered actually, because I, I don't. I I sit and read, you know, just read. But a lot of my friends who read and have obviously kindly bought the books, they say, "Oh well, I finished chapter six, and then I'll read." And then I went to sleep. So I, I'll, I read a chapter every night. How can you just read a chapter every night? I can't understand that, but people do. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I just read until I fall asleep. <laughs> well, you read until I switch the light off. It's basically how it works. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's interesting that, that people do like the chunks, the small chunks in, in a book. So chapters, are, I think chapters are getting smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on. I couldn't believe, I mean, I just, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago on the show, but I'm reading Terry Hayes's long-awaited uh, Year of the Locust. Oh, yeah. Um, it's been yeah. Yeah, and it is, I mean, Penguin haven't even bothered to put any white space in it because the chapters are so short. <laughs> They're almost Twitter, you know, really? tweets, yeah. tweets or <laughs> chains of tweets length. Yes. yes. You know, one page, chapter done. Yes. Well, I think there is a trend, isn't there? People want to start looking at Twitter novels. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, terrifying. Is terrifying, but it will happen. Well, I, I, there may be some out there already, I don't know. Um, but I think it will It will happen. Yeah. Mm. Well, this might terrify you. The book I'm reading at now doesn't have chapters. It is just a book. It has section breaks, but... That's not quite the same. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I, I I do like my chapters, and I like to end them with a hook, and they all come out roughly the same length too, which is, I suppose that's goodness knows how many years of training, you know. They yeah. Two and a half thousand words. With whatever I do, I can't write more than two and a half thousand words for a chapter. Yes, <laughs> I think you're right. I think that, that you get this sense of, uh, and there's a natural length that that suits you as a person but there's an inbuilt i have a limiter as well where i reach a point in a when i'm writing something and i think blimey right i'm putting a full stop here and that's going to be the chapter break i mean you know it's not quite like that but but certainly you when you were out in the field reporting you knew what certain amount of um you know if if you were told right you've got a minute you knew how many words that i felt like a minute and the interesting thing is that um, the first four books have been done as audio. Yes, uh, I was going to ask about that. Yes, and that is interesting because I, I sat and listened to them. And I thought, I didn't write that. And I thought, I didn't write that. And I look, went right back and looked at the book. I did write that. But she's, <laughs> she's so clever because she's some of it is her own. In, the emphasis is different. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, I have found that absolutely fascinating the emphasis um that the you know very helen stern who'd done them is a mm. very clever actress and how she's made them sound different in lot in lots of ways to how i heard them and i think that's interesting it, it is an interesting phenomenon because as i've mentioned before i'm a narrator as well and um the projects that work really well is when the the author understands that that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be interpreting what's in front of me and I'm going to inhabit those characters in the way that yeah. technically I can do it in terms of voices and attitude and whatever else. And the, and the fact that I have a voice such as it is, um, but also the, 
the prose, the connective prose between the dialogue scenes, I'm going to, in you know, the way that I interpret those sentences and um, the mood of the landscape or the weather or whatever it is that's impinging on the scene, I will recreate that sense in my voice. Yes. And it is another brain. So yeah. you've got your author brain written the thing, right? And I'm in my job is to interpret it the way I see it as if I was a reader, yeah. but I've also got to create something that sounds right. Yes. The right pacing, the right character, you know, the right pauses. And it does completely change the uh, emphasis. Yes. Yeah, it's it's not, not a story, obviously, but there, there are certain characters and I think I, Oh, that's how she saw him. Is it, you know, how interesting. I didn't see him like that at all. Um, I didn't think I'd read him, written him like that. But when I look back, she's used exactly, she hasn't changed my words. The script no. is exactly the same as I mm. wrote, just that the emphasis is different. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah it, it, it it is. And I, I'm glad you've engaged in that sense, because I'm sure as a writer, uh, I get this impression from the writers that I've, I've um, worked with that have listened and come away thinking, Ah, and actually it's given them inspiration to, I think one of our authors even said that, you know, to get back into writing the series that he was writing, he would listen to my audiobooks because that would take him back into that world and, yes. you know, gave him new options and where to develop the characters. Yes. So does, has that been something you've experienced um, as well? Not, not, not so much that. I think um, it's, it's just opened up the possibilities to me, I think, of, of how you – how people see things in a different way, which is, and you can't be too um, precious about. No, you can't be prescriptive about it. Yes, because they 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 will, if people listen to them and then go and read the books, they'll see, they may have a different, a third opinion again, completely. I mean, there's a there's a, a recurring character in the series who is um, Mr. And Mrs. Darcy's youngest daughter, Benetta. And she comes across differently for everybody who reads her. Uh, but the only, the overwhelming thing is if I get letters and things from people saying, when are you going to write her love story? Please, can you write her love story? <laughs> yes, well, I can't get to it one day, I suppose. <laughs> well, you do write quite quickly, because I think you said you started these during lockdown. Yeah, it says his book six is out. Well, next week, 26th, book six is out. Book seven is two chapters long. Well, you see, I've, I had a, I've, I've been, I've slowed down. I had a knee operation. I'm moving house, and I'm trying to write a book all at the same time. So it's yeah, life's a bit yeah. complicated. Yes. Yeah, that's that's impinging on your creativity time. That's, that question. That's still very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> but no, um, I will write Benetta's story if I can think of one for her. Um, but she's been very, very popular, even though she's not the main character in any, you know, she just appears in all the books. Yeah. 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 That's sometimes the way though, isn't it? People just just associate very strongly with a can't keep not necessarily the same character that you I, intended. I, I, I intended very firmly not to have her in this book and she's already jumping up and down inside my head. <laughs> you know, when am I going to come on stage? When am I going to appear? You know. Brilliant. You Brilliant. know, my turn. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and Linda, one before we get to the the random question, I wanted to to ask you about because of your background in the the you know at an early stage 
in the publishing world before all of these huge changes came in, um, particularly around digital publishing. But uh, do you still take a keen interest in the in the sort of the uh, the book publishing world. Yeah, the developments within the publishing world. Because yeah, you um, used to work in publishing. Yeah, I, I find it. Um, I find it interesting. I don't understand some of the um, genre. Um, uh, I don't like some of the genre, um, but that's that's just my personal. You know, I find it interesting. What you know, the young adult. I find young adult odd. I can read some of the books and think, well, why is it a young adult? And not just an ordinary book, yeah. Ordinary adult book. I don't. I don't understand where young adult comes from. Well, I don't understand the break, the lines. But that's probably my great age, and not anything to do with, you know, the actual industry. But, but then, it didn't. It didn't exist, did it? Well, I started writing when I was sixteen, and I had two books published by Collins, which were children's books. I mean, all my beginning of my career was was children's write. You know, writing as you know, endless short stories for comics, endless yes. serials for School Friend and Ginty and, and um, books, you know, books, ballet books and all this sort of thing, you know, which mm. was a great love when I was young. Um, and that, that, that is gone. That, that no, you know, young girls aren't scientists but interested, or they say they're not. But then if I give one of my old books, and they're very, very dated, very dated, <laughs> written in the sixties. Can you imagine? You know, yes, yes, um, class ridden and all that sort oh, of thing. Like, yeah. Well, what? Um, I, I cringe when I read some of it. You know, <laughs> and uh, but if you give it to a young girl of say ten or eleven now, it's in. It's fascinating. They like them. Mm. And you can't get books like now about ballet. The girls going to ballet school. You can't get books now about girls having ponies. <laughs> Again, it's like um, the, the the whole pony side of, of of children's writing has vanished. Yeah, completely. And uh, you because know, I I was a child in the seventies, and so many books were about ponies. <laughs> yeah, we lap them up. You know, yeah, it's like um, you know. And yet, the passion for the for having a pony is still there. I, I have friends yeah. who's. Daughters were obsessed with their, you know, and, and the, the fathers were all wringing their hands about how can we afford it? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I no. mean, it's like if the people, yeah, I know there was all this recent uproar about, you know, the famous five television series, wasn't there, about making Georgia uh, mixed gender, um, mixed race trans. Mm. Yes, I, I saw it. I watched it on Christmas Day while I was uh, peeling sprouts. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Very, very dismissive of Blight. And, of Enid Blyton, um, I think is so sad because yes, you, you read them now and you just they're just some of it is you you know yeah these four children are going to go off in a caravan and the oldest is thirteen and they're <laughs> let them roam around the countryside in this caravan yeah it's going to happen isn't it you know um, well, I loved it though because when mm. I was thirteen well I read them when I was younger than thirteen but I I thought I want to be and I want to yes. be them. Yes, I wanted. I wanted an island. I wanted a, a dog. I wanted a. I wanted to have adventures. Um, it, it it stirs your imagination, and I think that's what she was all about. Or, or she's laugh mocked at now, um, as they're starting to mock Christie, Agatha Christie now. Yes, um, they're starting to mock her and say, "Oh, if that." manuscript was delivered to a publisher now it would never be accepted of course not no 
and it's different times, isn't it? You and, know, why would it be? It's not- but, but isn't this about the sensitivity within the publishing world of trying to be seen on the right side of history? In, when they're publishing something now, it has to fit a certain number of things in, in terms of diversity and awareness of, of, of issues. That's what they're concerned about, is they don't want to be the publisher that gets, you know, destroyed no, I mean, on, on Twitter. A couple of years ago, there was a big um, thing about Jane Austen and slavery. Yeah. And they wanted to ban Austen because they said all her characters, quite rightly probably, all their money was probably, well, definitely in um, uh, one of the books, definitely um, Mansfield Park. The whole of their money is comes from the West Indies and yes. sugar plantations. Yes, uh, that that she wrote about. You know, she was quite cheerfully wrote about that. Yep. Um, and people said, "Oh, she was she was aware of slavery and she was trying to write against it." I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, we're we're talking about a very long time ago. In yeah, just- well, a, a, a former colleague of mine is the uh, hereditary. You know, um, he's an MP now for the Conservatives, but he is Richard Drax, and in Dorset, you're neck of the woods for the books um he is you know the owner of a massive estate and it's all sugar money and you know it was and he's being chased for the reparations um for the track for the the behavior of um you know his ancestors and and the sugar plants who still owns one actually i think people were wanting austin to have this um you know printing things in the front of the book saying well you know yes a lot of her characters had all their money this came from slavery this came from sugar plantations cotton plantations whatever in the west indies um you know this must be stated um yeah i i, I disagree with this i think it's i, I don't okay, yeah. put ideas into people's head who lived 250 years ago and say this is how they should have thought mm. uh, yeah. it's it's uh uh i mean that's just ridiculous my- how do you react to something like Bridgerton on Netflix, which deliberately has played, you know, torn up what would have been the social mix in that strata of society it is- and presented actors of colour in yeah. in that society? I've got no worry about people, of, of, of actors of colour playing any role, I, I, but I object to it when it's a, a real person um, you know, and, and then suddenly they've 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 turned them into a West Indian character. I I, I find that or West Indian extract character, if that's the right expression. Well, there, I mean, there was an example on Doctor Who um, where Sir Isaac Newton is, was is mixed race. Yeah, yes, mixed race, and and I I don't see that point of that. I can, you know, um, but they you know, I'm 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 probably out of step with that. Well, yeah. you know, it's, but, it's a debate we have often. Bridgerton is, it's not pretending to be anything, it's just playing with the concept, isn't it? And no, yeah, indeed, indeed. It's acceptable in Bridgerton. Mm. Sandy did it better because one of the girls there, you know, she's, she is a, uh, of a mixed race West Indian heritage. Um, and that's written into the plot, you know. That right. So she's, that's fine. You know, absolutely no worries about that whatsoever. Well, I've got mm. no worries about any of it, to be honest. But um, uh, I suppose the day will come when they start doing Pride and Prejudice as and 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 have mixed 
fine. Um, I think it would be interesting to see where they go with some of it. Uh, mm. We'll see. We'll, well see, yeah. Right. Well, well, okay. What the future holds, we don't know. Well, what the immediate future holds is, of course, Rebecca's random question. Okay. Two friendly aliens knock on your door and they say they want to take you to their planet. But they're friendly aliens and you're willing to go. And they say, bring three things from your, from your house that represent what it's like to be a human so you can educate our aliens. What would you bring and why? Have I got to go? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they want, they're, they're very friendly and, and it's not permanent. It's just a holiday on the planet. My God, what, 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 it'll be human. Um, a photograph album, I think, with all my old pictures in it. Um, probably my collection of teddy bears, because I think they have to realise that there is that side of people's, you know. And mm. probably... Oh, cookery book, I think. So they can see what we eat. That's a good one, yeah. But hopefully they'll have similar ingredients so you can back. cook them a feast. <laughs> you know, if they've got stuff up there that I could cook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> well, that's very, very good answers. What would you take oh, then? Blimey, that, I just... put it on him as well. This is one of the toughest. Um... <laughs> I'd have to take a musical instrument, not that I'm particularly musical, but I'd take my guitar. Um, You'd have I, little sing-alongs around the campfire. On, possibly, because I think, I think <laughs> you know, in terms of culture, you, you know, you that is one of the, the ways that uh, we best communicate to ourselves and we communicate to another. Yeah, music is a form of communication, isn't it? You think so? Yes. You probably communicate with them because you start I, singing along to, I don't know, Smelly Cat, and they all go, ooh, this is a nice song. <laughs> uh, I'll take my dartboard. Oh, your dartboard. That's just for you to play. That's yeah, fun. I mean, I'm going to get bored otherwise. I mean, you know. Um, but they make alien games up there, which would be very interesting. I would, yes. Um, yeah, that would be. They might have their own version. I suppose I should take... Uh, a favourite book, but I'm not sure what. Well, they yet. wouldn't be able to read it, would they? No, but I could read it to them and maybe interpret it to them and, and act it. Yes, that's true. You could act out. You could take Shakespeare and act the whole of Shakespeare for them. Oh, maybe, maybe. But uh, I, yes, I'd be going, I'm, I, I don't know what it means. But anyway, I've just, you know, I've done my best to read it for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah. yes. My, my, my voices look very sad against, but I, I think... No, I will stick with my photograph album, my teddy bears and my cookery book. Yeah, I think that's a very good choice. And you, love? I'd take a bicycle. Yeah. So I could cycle around the island and they could have fun cycling. Because I bet a bicycle would look very unusual and strange to aliens. Yeah. If they have two legs. Right. <laughs> four legs. Um, you... What else would I take? <laughs> oh, it is, it's hard, isn't it? Um I can't I... believe you asked the question didn't have any answers ready for yourself. Came up with it just it's very unfair, isn't it? I had to answer take... off the top of my head, which is very unfair. You know that exactly. Uh, take a tin of Quality Street. No, I'm going to take. I'm going to take my paints and um, some canvases, and I'm going to paint yes, the aliens that... portraits of the aliens' right. presence, well, and also is... saying, you know, we do. We are creative yeah. beings, humans, mm -hmm. and this is one yeah. of the ways we're creative. Yeah. I think also, if I were allowed, I would shove some packets of seeds in my pocket so that I could plant things up there. 
uh, which were, you know, reminiscent of home. That's right. a good idea. You could introduce them to potatoes, for example. I was thinking more of lobelia, but the potatoes <laughs> would be fine, yes. <laughs> Have you got a third? I, I know, I've got to think of a third now. So paintings, a bicycle. Um, hmm. Maybe I'm going to sound like Amal Rajan. I'm going to have to hurry you. Oh, yes, I know, because I've got to take two children to uh, a mock exam. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I do like the idea of the teddy bear. So some sort of ornament thing. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, looking around, we haven't got many ornaments, have we? Um, oh. maybe the cat, new cat. I'll take oh. new cat, okay? <laughs> Tinkerbell, the new cat. Well, um, we we draw this to a close. Uh, Linda, what a pleasure! It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, just remind us, your new book is out very, very shortly. So yeah. it's called, and where can people get it? It's called Beth. And it's book number six of the Cousins of Pemberley series. It's published by Spellbound Books. It's available uh, well, on Amazon, obviously, and any bookshop. Um, and it is the story of Jane Bingley's oldest daughter, who's Beth. Fantastic. Lovely. <laughs> well, we wish you every success with that. Yeah, and, and um, the series and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, really... What a pleasure it's been to speak to you and, you know, fascinating. Thank you. Very, very much for your time. I love that interview and it was very unexpected. We didn't know what to expect. And, you know, we just love doing interviews, basically. Yeah. We love speaking to people and we always love the fact that they sort of respond so positively to the way we do it. Yes, so, in, indeed. And I maybe I was a bit mean with my random question, but she did really well with that. She did. Yeah, it was a tough one. That was really tough. I was struggling. I mean, and me as well. I should, I, sh- I should think in advance, shouldn't I, an answer to the random question, Absolutely. but I didn't. So no, no. I struggled as well. So who's our guest next, next week? Uh, so next week we're talking to someone we met at the London Book Fair two years ago, um, Daniela um, Betchner who is the publisher and owner of a uh, small publisher called Conscious Dreams. Yes. Um, so she's a member of the Independent Publishers Guild, um, same as we are, and that's how we met her. We, we did a very short little uh, interview with her then, but she wants to have a sort of proper Hobeck, Hobcast treatment. So she's on next week. Fantastic. And next week is looking monumentally busy, isn't it? Yes, um, I'd like to briefly speak about my 2024 challenge that I've set myself. Oh, yeah, that's good, yeah. So it's not a hard challenge, I don't think, um, but I want to, I'm determined to do it. So I've decided that for the year 2024, I'm only going to buy books published by either independent authors or uh, small independent presses. So this is basically uh, publishers who may be in the indie press network. That's how I'm sort of discovering hmm. um, so far. I've bought two books so far. And they haven't arrived yet, but that's fine. I, you know, I'm, I'm accepting that if I buy direct, I'm going to try and buy direct from their website. If I buy direct, there will be a two or three day delay between getting the book. And I'm also paying slightly higher than normal for postage, but I'm not going to a shop. So I'm saving you know, transport, parking, what have you. So I don't mind that. So I'm going to see how it goes. And mm-hmm. um, I would love it if other people did this too, if it caught on. Yes, I think you're so, making a very good stance. Yeah, if you're listening and you fancy doing this, um, just check out my Twitter, Becky Bendy Legs. I've put about it there. So Fantastic. 
Well, look, you know, I think it's really admirable. I'll try and do the same, but I don't buy nearly as many books as you do. So, <laughs> no. that, you know, that's uh, that's a given. Uh, right. Well, I'm rushing off north to go see my dad and then uh, pick up my son tomorrow, take him back to university. One of yours is back to university off to Leeds. Yeah, he's gone today. Yeah. I've got to um, take the other one to golf in a minute. <laughs> yes, you've got to rush off in a second. So we'll keep this, this brief. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's so so many things going on at the moment in terms of the business but also life outside of it and trying to squeeze it all in it's um it's getting to be quite a juggling act at the minute yes but um we're happy when we're juggling i think i wanted to finish my contribution today by paying tribute to somebody who has inspired my creativity for decades and my spirit in life i suppose um when i'm at my best i'm at being irreverent i'm being twinkly i'm being naughty and um that is the spirit of the man i want to pay tribute to who was 90 yesterday (laughs) tom baker and he loves cats he turns out he loves cats who knew yeah there's loads of pictures of him with cats um but uh i i think tom baker the fourth doctor of doctor who is one of those great national treasures. He goes unsung. He's not got his, you know, he's not made a given a knighthood. And I think he'd probably turn it down, actually, because, you know, he just runs against the grain sometimes and has always done so. And uh, I, I admire that because mm. he's just kept going. Now, he's not looking perhaps in the best of health because, you know, he's he's looking very gaunt nowadays. But the spirit still remains. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And I think that's a lesson to us all. So happy birthday, Tom. <laughs> and uh, we're still trying to get you onto the podcast. Yes, if you're listening, <laughs> I would love to. He is an author, obviously, of not only his autobiography, but other books as well. I, I don't care. If he came on the podcast, it would be... It would make our lives. Highlight of our, yeah. Our lives, yeah. Anyway, uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Don't forget to check out our website, www.hobart.net. For details of all of our books, our authors, and everything else that we do. Uh, but uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And we wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.